Hello. Welcome. We're really glad that you've joined us. We hope that you're doing well, and we're glad that you're interested in spiritual things. My name's Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. We read in the book of Philippians, beginning in chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more, and with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus, because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of your, their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So this is Paul's letter to the Philippians. In chapter 1 and verse 1, we see it's Paul and Timothy, and they're writing to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Now in Acts chapter 16, verses 10 through 40, we read of how the church in Philippi was established. It's the first church that Paul worked to establish in Macedonia, uh, which is part of Greece and really in all Europe. 
uh, around the year 51 uh, CE. Uh, Paul was there for many days. We're not told exactly how long, but it doesn't seem to be terribly long. Now in Acts chapter 20, in the first four verses, Paul again visits Philippi twice after his time in Ephesus and before he begins his journey to Jerusalem, which he did around the year 55 uh, CE. We can also see here that there are overseers and deacons, uh, so the church is organized scripturally. And therefore, it's a bit more mature than many of the other churches that we can read about in the New Testament. And as we can see, even from the first chapter, and really throughout the whole letter, Paul has a very strong relationship with the Christians of Philippi. And uh, they're very important and close to him. Now, in the letter of the Philippians here, we can tell in verse 7, and 12-14, that Paul uh, is in prison. He's in chains, and he speaks about uh, the Praetorian Guard, has heard of him. In chapter 4, and verse 22, he says that the saints in Caesar's household greet the Christians in Philippi. And so from these clues, we can conclude that Paul writes Philippians while he's imprisoned, uh, specifically while he's imprisoned in Rome, which had been around the year 60-62, to 62. Uh, according to Acts 28, 13-31, in our understanding of the history of the time. So he's writing to the Philippians about a decade after the church was established. Uh, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon are also considered with Philippians the prison letters or prison epistles. Now, Paul writes because he's showing thankfulness for the concern and prayers and gifts of the Philippians. He's telling them what's going on with his situation. He has some exhortations for the believers. And he's also talking about the welfare of Epaphroditus, uh, who's probably the one bringing the letter with him, and we'll see that more in chapter 2, and also from clues in chapter 1 through 14 and 4, 14 through 18. So Philippians is providing an opportunity for Paul to encourage and exhort a group of mature Christians. We don't see the number of crises or fires to fight like in First or Second Thessalonians, Galatians, or First Second Corinthians. He has a strong relationship with them, unlike the Romans and the Colossians. Uh, and he writes with very strong feeling, unlike perhaps the what, Ephesians, which is likely an encyclical. So what does Paul have to say to people who are standing firm in the Lord? and have been supporters of him. This is what we're learning about here in Philippians. And so as we mentioned, he's Paul and Timothy are writing, but it's mostly Paul, as we're going to see. And he's talking about uh, the overseers. Uh, this is the first indication that we have of overseers, episcopois. Uh, also bishops. Uh, it's also known as a function of elders in 1 Peter 5, 1-4. And that there's also deacons in the church in Philippi. Uh, and it's also worth noting that there are overseers of the church in Philippi. There's plural overseers in the singular group here in Philippi. And we have a standard greeting of a letter, grace to you and peace from God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. As is his custom in verses 3-11, through 11, Paul begins by commending the brethren and thanking them. And he actually has a prayer of thankfulness here. And that he remembers them fondly and joyfully when he's thanking God about them in his prayers. He remembers their fellowship, their koinonia, also association or joint participation, uh, specifically in advancing the gospel in Philippians 1, 3-5. He's confident that God, who began a good work in these Philippians, will bring it to completion on the day when Jesus returns. And Paul feels it's appropriate to feel this way because Philippians are in his heart. They partake with him in grace, in his imprisonment, and also the defense of the gospel that uh, Paul, God can witness to Paul's fervent longing for them in what was 
splachnois, a great Greek word, literally means bowels uh, or tender mercies or compassion in Christ. That feeling you get of empathy and sympathy down in your gut. That's the great feeling Paul has uh, for the uh, desire to be there with the Philippians in Christ. And so Paul then prays that they would abound more and more in knowledge and discernment so they could approve what's excellent to be sincere, to be without stumbling when Jesus returns, they could be filled with the fruits of righteousness through Christ to the glory and honor of God in verses 9 through 11. We can really see this deep relationship and concern and love that Paul has with these Philippian Christians here. So after he has this introduction and the greeting, he goes into the progress of the gospel and also a little bit about his condition. His imprisonment, as many would fear, and you can see the Philippians fearing that would cause great problems for Paul and great problems for the proclamation of the gospel. But Paul wants to reassure them, actually, uh, astonishingly perhaps, it's led to the advancement of the gospel. That the whole Praetorian Guard, which is designed to protect the emperor, they all know why he's imprisoned. And that the Christians in Rome who are preaching Jesus are actually emboldened to preach because of Paul's imprisonment. Um... But it seems strange to us. You'd think somebody is being imprisoned for a cause, that that cause would make it seem worse. But we need to keep in mind that Paul's imprisonment, according to Acts 28.30, was lighting the house arrest. And so it probably helped to show that the Christians really weren't that much of a threat to the imperial system and their imperial authority. And so it allowed for perhaps a little more leniency than had been allowed before. In verse 15, Paul starts talking about the motivations that people have in preaching Jesus. And he meant some preach from envy and strife. Others are preaching from goodwill. Uh, those who preach from goodwill know that, hey, Paul is a, a true believer, and that's why he's in prison. He's suffering for the name. The other ones are trying to be divisive. They're trying to cause Paul problems. And, and we can understand that. Uh, According to uh, Suetonius in the Life of the Twelve Caesars, uh, because of one Crestus, uh, the previous emperor, Claudius, had expelled uh, the Jews out of Rome. Uh, in fact, even in Acts 18 to verse 2, that's where we're told why Priscilla and Aquila are in Corinth. Uh, and so, uh, they were probably thinking, if you go and start preaching about Jesus, uh, causing all kinds of division and uproar, uh, that could lead uh, Paul and other people to be in a really compromised position. And, and maybe Nero was going to let him go, but now they're going to do something more serious to him because of the response to the gospel in Rome. Uh, and so you would think that maybe Paul would be kind of against this and aghast at this, but in verse 18 says, he rejoices that Christ is preached, whether in pretense or in truth, truth, and that's giving him reason to rejoice. And he takes that theme of rejoicing into this next section, beginning in verse 19, um, because he's convinced that his situation will lead to salvation because the Philippians are making supplications for him, and because of the contribution of the Spirit. He's not going to be put to shame, and he's confident that if he lives or dies, Christ will be magnified in him, in verses 19 and 20. And he has this great verse, that to live is Christ, to die is gain, in verse 21. And he goes on to explain what that means, that that he knows if he goes and dies, he's going to be with Christ, and that's far better. But he knows that he has work still to do for the Philippians, for the Christians, to help encourage them in their faith and advance the gospel. 
and so he knows that uh, he's going to continue in life for the time being, that he's got a lot of, of things to do here still. And it's also a strong argument, though, as we'll see a little bit more, that when the believer dies, they go to be with Jesus in heaven, because it's hard to understand Paul's statement here uh, otherwise. And he is confident that he will see uh, the progress that the Philippians will make in their faith, and that he will, in fact, see them again in verses 25 and 26. But in the meantime, he wants to encourage them, whether he's there or not, that they need to politeuste, which literally uh, means to behave like citizens, which means to conduct their lives in ways worthy of the gospel. So that whether uh, Paul is there or not there, uh, he will hear there standing from one spirit, striving with one soul for the gospel. Verse 27. That the Philippians should not be afraid of their adversaries, because the way they're living is evidence of their salvation and the condemnation of their opponents. And it's a very interesting way he puts this in verse 29. That's been granted to the Philippians, not just to believe in Jesus, but also to suffer with him. They've seen the conflict Paul had for Christ. They saw it in the fact he was thrown in prison when he preached the gospel there the first time a decade earlier. And they had heard about all of his trials and travails ever since. And that now they are also sharing in those same uh, sufferings as well. uh, Persecuted for their faith. This is what Paul talks about when we call the first chapter of Philippians, Philippians 1, 1 through 30. There's a lot of things that we can gain out of this. So he's writing to the Philippian Christians all these years ago, but there's a lot of things we can apply for it. And it's interesting to note how Paul continues to go down this theme of being worthy of the gospel. It's a great verse, the idea of behaving as if you're worthy of the gospel. That there's this life that you're supposed to be living as a Christian. Yes, Jesus is going to complete his work in the Philippians. That the Philippians are partaking of grace along with Paul in verses 6 and 7. But what is Paul praying for them? That their love will abound more and more. That that knowledge and discernment will be added to it. They can approve what is excellent so they can be filled with the fruit of righteousness. That they're to behave in a way worthy of the gospel. To stand firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel with one mind. And he's saying this to Christians that he knows very well, and who have supported him, whom he's commending constantly for their faith and what they're doing. Uh, Many of them have been Christians for a decade, they've gone through persecution, they're mature Christians. And so it really shows us that this prayer and exhortation is worthwhile and important for all Christians. Anyone should be striving for this, but especially it's got importance for Christians who've had a good handle on the truths of the faith, that have lived it for some time, and fairly mature, have a decent understanding of what's going on, like the Philippian Christians. That even when we've grown up in the faith a little bit, and some of our challenges and difficulties we may have had in our more quote-unquote immature days have passed us by, we still need to behave in a way worthy of the gospel. And what is a life worthy of the gospel? Yes, it involves being filled with the fruit of righteousness. Yes, it involves that daily conduct. But it's shared together. It's walking together in the faith. It's striving to be of one mind and of one spirit. And of course, as we get into another conversation with the beginning of Philippians chapter 2, that will become a major theme for Paul as well. And notice that even mature Christians have a need to have their love abound. Mature Christians are to gain knowledge and discernment so they can approve what is excellent and to manifest the fruit of righteousness. 
love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, things of that nature. Galatians 5, 22-24, the fruit of the Spirit. So that it doesn't matter if you've been a Christian a few days or for many years, there are more ways in which we can love to grow and stand firm together in the gospel that we must always give great concern to how we live as worthy of the gospel of Christ. As we also saw here, Paul notes that people preach out of a lot of different motives. Uh, You'd think that Paul would want to dissuade that kind of behavior, but uh, he just rejoices that Jesus is preached in verse 18 of chapter 1. And it's important for us to recognize that in the world, people proclaim the gospel for all kinds of reasons. And that whenever it's preached in its apostolic simplicity, we should be glad. It's important, though, because there are preachers who preach with dishonest motivations. But their dishonest motivations does not mean that the Word cannot do its work. That, in fact, the people can still learn about Jesus and follow Jesus. It, the message be, does not become less true or less powerful because the person who's preaching it isn't preaching it out of sincere motivations. And thanks be to God that He can use that proclamation of the Gospel, even when it's not being done for the best reasons. And it can still have its power. It still can lead to people coming to a knowledge of it to be saved. And that's a wonderful part about the gospel of Christ. Now, does that not mean that it's a great thing to preach for dishonest motives or that that's some kind of commendable behavior? Far from it. Nevertheless, we are glad the gospel still has that effort and that God can still work through the gospel even though sometimes we fall short. Perhaps the most compelling part of this whole discussion is Paul's discussion of his existence and his eternal destiny in verses 19 through 26. We do well to first note the peace that he has, no matter what happens to him. He's convinced if he lives or dies that Jesus will be glorified and that that's what matters. And, and really, it's an com- amazing thing to say when you think about his circumstances. Yes, he's got a good case. He's in Rome. Uh, His opponents and accusers really don't have anything uh, that they can stick. Uh, In fact, in Acts 26, we're told that if he had not appealed to Caesar, he would have been set free by Festus and Agrippa. So he's probably got a good case. But it's Nero who is emperor in the year 1661. And Nero is a capricious type. And so, if you catch Nero on a bad day, it may not go well with you. And so, he he cannot have any certainty, based upon the emperor, about what will happen. He has all the certainty, though, in Jesus. Because he knows that, okay, if the emperor says, alright, you're going to be thrown to the lions, or you're going to become a torch, Jesus can be glorified. And if he is allowed to live and proclaim the gospel, Jesus will be glorified. And it's a good question to ask. Can we maintain that same trust in God, in Christ, to feel as comfortable that if we are living or dying right now, no matter what, Christ will be glorified? And that we can be comfortable with that, and have peace with that, like Paul does. It's interesting that he says, to die and be with Christ is far better. That's sure, we can recognize that, to die and be with Christ is far better. That's Paul's personal desire. That's his desire all of us should have personally, that we will go and be with the Lord, that we will no longer have to deal with the problems and the pain, the suffering and the frustrations, the futility of this present creation. It's a very strange statement to make if we do not go to be with the Lord right after death. Because if we're unconscious after death until the day of resurrection, Paul could have both. He could do work and then to be with Christ, and nothing is lost. 
And if we're in some holding place after death until the day of resurrection, how can Paul meaningfully say that when he dies he will go and be with Christ? If you go and die, you're not really with Christ, you're just in another place. It's really dishonest to say that you will be with Christ. So it seems that Paul's affirming that Christians will go to heaven to be with the Lord while away in the day of the resurrection. And Paul uh, does have the Spirit of the Lord, as he would suggest in 1 Corinthians 7. And so that's an important thing for us to consider, but we shouldn't get so interested in that that we miss Paul's great point. He doesn't say, to live is gain and to die is Christ. He says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. We might want to be with the Lord, but we have work to do here. And Paul comes down the side of that fruitful labor and a continuing to live. And what does that mean for Paul? It doesn't mean a comfortable middle-class American existence. It means imprisonment, further imprisonment, further abuse, further suffering. So if anybody had the right to say, I am just wanted my ticket punched, I'm done, it would be Paul. But he is submitting to the will of Christ. To live is Christ. To live means to follow in his steps, to accomplish his purposes, which do involve suffering, which do involve the path of the cross. We want to all get to Zion, but with Jesus, the path of Zion went through Calvary. So we're going to have that moment as well. And we do what he says because he wills us to do so. So we can't take this idea of Philippians 123 that uh, to, to die and be with Christ as far better as a justification for escapism. We do should and we should want to desire to be with the Lord. That will be great. That's the gain. But we are here for good reasons. We are here to be as Christ, to serve the Lord in this life, to participate in fruitful ministry. When we die, we can gain heaven and the resurrection. That is wonderful. But while we live, we live for Christ, and we should seek to glorify and honor Him in our lives to the full. So that we've seen a lot of great things about uh, Paul and the Philippians in this first chapter of Philippians, that Paul has a strong relationship with them and ex- prays for and exhorts them to abound in love and behave in a manner worthy of the gospel, that his situation has led to the promotion of the gospel, that he l- continues to live to minister to the people of God his glory and honor, and therefore we do well to live as worthy of the gospel, that we should pursue maturity, and that when we've gained maturity, that we continue to pursue love and unity in the faith. So we can say, whether we live or die, that what we are doing glorifies God in Christ. We're again really thankful that you've spent this time with us, and we hope that you've been encouraged. If there's anything more you'd like to talk about with first letter, Philipp- first chapter of Philippians, maybe you have other questions, or would like to discuss other things, maybe you'd like to learn how to become a Christian, or you got a prayer request, just need to talk. If I can be of any service, please let me know. Please contact me through our website at verbalvitae.com, www.de. V-E-R-B-O-V-I-T-A-E dot com. And if you'd like to know more about the Venice Church of Christ, you can find us online at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. We're also on social media, Facebook, Google+, Twitter, Instagram, at Venice Church or Venice Church of Christ. We again thank you. Have a great day.